I've been reminded of two Christmas truths uh, this season uh, that I should know uh, well, being as old as I am. The first is turkey has a shelf life. Uh, Last night I came home from the Pete's game, and uh, I remember on Christmas Day, we had all sorts of turkey leftover, so I carved all the turkey and put all the leftovers in a green Tupperware. And lo and behold, it was on the kitchen table when I got home last night. And I thought, oh, Allison is thawing it, and she's going to use it to cook something. I'm going to sneak a piece. And so I found this nice, dark, because I love dark meat, dark piece. And before I said anything to Allison, I took a big bite out of it, walked to the bottom of the stairs chewing it, but I didn't want her to know I was eating it. And I called up, are you sure you want to leave the turkey out of the refrigerator overnight? And she said, oh, no. She says, can you believe that's been sitting in the downstairs refrigerator since Christmas Day? I'm just throwing it out. And so I've felt horrible ever since. I'm hoping it's just my mind. I didn't tell her till this morning when she looked at me and said, oh, brother. And I said, yes, I think I've poisoned myself. I did something bad. Well, that's usually how I start the morning with that uh, phrase. Anyways, the other thing I learned this Christmas, which I know, uh, but uh, don't go to the Oshawa Center or any place like that uh, the weekend before Christmas and think you're going to find a parking spot. Uh, And uh, Lauren had driving lessons or driver's ed in Whitby. I picked her up and it'd been a lousy weather day. So I figured, you know what? we should be able to get some parking. Let's go to the Oshawa Center. I was driving the pickup truck, which makes it even worse trying to find a spot. And it was bedlam. We drove in and within about a minute, I said to Lauren, I said, this is ridiculous. Like there is no parking. I can't even create a parking spot with the truck. Every known space uh, was taken up. Uh, And so I thought to myself, this is crazy. I can hardly wait till Christmas is over and things get back to normal. And I don't know if any of you had a shopping mall parking lot experience and that same thought w- went through your mind, but it definitely went through my mind. And the reality is Christmas is so busy, it's so hectic, it's so expensive that by the time we hit the 25th or maybe the 26th, uh, I don't know about you, but I feel battered and I feel exhausted. And I'm just happy that we made it to the 25th. And, and, and relieved in a sense that it's over. And, and, and that relief is celebrated by the symbolic removal of the Christmas tree. And, and so this past week when Allison said, I want to get the Christmas tree out of here, uh, I sprung to action and out the door into the backyard uh, it went. Uh, and uh, we'll sit there till we can burn it in the spring. But it was just sell it. Christmas is over. We finally made it through. And, you know, there's a, there's a Christmas parody, and I've read it here a number of years ago. Uh, someone kind of combined Luke's account uh, and the, the, I don't know if it's a story or whatever, uh, it was the night before Christmas, uh, and uh, combines it and, does, and makes a parody of, the, of Luke's narrative. Uh, and the last line in that parody was, Thank goodness Christmas only comes once a year. And I wonder how many of us, if we really were honest, agree. Thank goodness Christmas only comes 
once a year. But you know, unfortunately, lost in the hustle and bustle of Christmas is the true meaning of Christmas at times that is represented in the person of Jesus. And yet we're so busy at Christmas that that sometimes it's hard to focus. And we've talked about that over the last number of weeks. It's hard to focus on that, that true meaning of Christmas. And, and as we've seen and we've talked about it and we witness it around us, for a lot of people, they just set that whole true meaning of Christmas aside. And Christmas is, is about anything uh, and everything but Jesus. But the reality is that the 2,000 years ago, in the midst of a whole lot of busyness, a census was taking place. A baby was born. A baby who was reported to be good news of great joy. Uh, was born to be our savior. Was born a king. Was born to be the bringer of peace. And, and so significant is his coming. And, and so critical his purpose. And, and so pivotal his person uh, to each one of our futures. He demands a response. Even in the busyness of the Christmas season, even in the feeling of relief that we finally made it through again, this baby demands a response from each one of us. And and so the question I would ask is, is how have you responded to that baby born that first Christmas morning? And and there could be a couple of people here and and you know you've not given a response or at least a positive one. You haven't taken the time to consider who this person is and what he represents and what he's done and and what he calls us to do. And we're going to talk about that response uh, in a little bit. But I'm I'm assuming most of us have responded to Jesus. I'm wondering if there's some of us and the response that is evident in our life today is not the same as what our response was when we first became a follower of Jesus. I wonder if there's some of us here and this good news of great joy isn't evident in our life today. And I'm wondering if there's some here like me who find it easy to fall into the trap of allowing our busyness in life to take away from the proper response that we should be giving to Jesus. I love the story of the Magi, the, the We Three Kings of Orient are. Because in that story, Matthew shows us the different responses that people in the story but throughout history have given to Jesus, including uh, what I believe is the correct response and the response that Matthew wants us to see. And, and that's in the account of the, uh, the Magi. And, and if you've got your Bible, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, someone just read out the page number so that we can all uh, be on the same page. 783. 783. Just a couple of comments about the story. Uh, When you preach, there's certain stories of Scripture that your first thought is this is going to be really easy to preach on because people, even outside the church, know the story. But then you realize that the truth is that some stories are so strikingly familiar that 
we don't take the time to check how accurate our facts really are. And, and then this is definitely one of those stories. The, the story of the Magi is, is clouded uh, with mystery. A lot of the things that, that we believe to be true in the account are, are mere speculation. Uh, much more speculation than, than textual. Our, our thinking and our understanding of this story uh, is, is molded so much by Christmas carols and, and Christmas cards uh, and nativity scenes. Uh, it's, it's much more uh, imagination than revelation. Matthew writes the account, and Matthew is not one given to sensationalism. Uh, he would not have made a good National Enquirer reporter or writer. Uh, he doesn't stretch the truth to make a story. In fact, he doesn't uh, include all the details which he could if he wanted to really dramatize the account. Matthew, in fact, leaves out a lot of the details that we would love to know. Like, how many magi were there really? Where are they actually from? What were they like? What did they believe? What was the star like? How did it guide them? How long was their journey? Whatever happened to the Magi? But Matthew's very selective in the details that he gives us. And I, and I think there's some reasons why. One is, is the purpose of Matthew's gospel. His, his purpose is to show and to convince non-believing Jews that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning a coming Messiah. And I believe his purpose in this story is to show us what the proper response should be to this baby born king. So let's read uh, the account. Verse 1, and I'll stop a couple of times with just a couple of extra comments. Verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And let me just stop there because there's a few things that we, can, that we can clear up. It says after Jesus was born, and, and that's the first tradition that we need to uh, at least address. We don't know exactly when the Magi came. It was after Jesus was born, and from some other details, Matthew, or sorry, Mary uh, and Joseph and the baby are in a house. Uh, and a little bit later, in verse 16, Herod comes up with this plot that he orders all uh, boys in the area of Bethlehem under the age of two to be put to death. We, we can kind of assume that it's taken place between the birth of Jesus uh, and Jesus turning two years old. We're also introduced the two main characters that Matthew wants us to think about. And this may throw you a bit, and, and we'll get to it in a, in a few moments. Jesus and King Herod. And he introduces us uh, to King Herod, and we're going to see very shortly that uh, Herod's reign was questionable at best. And it says, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked a question, and, and the word born in this question is one, if you like to underline things, underline that, because you really need to emphasize that word. Because what the Magi are literally asking is, 
Where is this child who by virtue of his very birth has the legitimate right to the throne? Which therefore throws Herod's reign uh, into question. And it says that they followed a star. Well, if you uh, were to look in the Old Testament, you would see that it was believed that stars could announce the birth of someone significant over the place that the star uh, would be found. And so we have these pagans, these, these Gentiles from a foreign nation coming to seek out this newborn baby, which is very remarkable and quite significant. We're going to see that in a moment, that it would be these, these foreigners, these, these Gentiles, who would be given divine guidance to find this newborn baby. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chiefs, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And so right away we know that uh, King Herod, although king of the Jews, uh, wasn't really up to snuff uh, on Old Testament prophecy. Anyone who knew their Old Testament scriptures knew that the promised Messiah was to be born uh, in Bethlehem. But Herod had to ask that question. Um, uh, in verse 5, In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by are no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And don't be fooled. That was not Herod's intent. And we're not going to go all the way to verse 16, but as I already mentioned in verse 16, Herod really wants to find out where the baby is so he can get rid of him. And uh, because the Magi trick him, uh, he ends up putting out the verdict or, or the edict that uh, any boy under the age of two should be put to death. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And, and, and we'll end the story uh, there. Matthew introduces us to three main characters. Three, well, we don't know how many magi there were. But we'll say magi is one group of character. He doesn't go to great effort to describe the Magi. The fact that there was three, that they were kings, that they had names, are just tradition, not really facts. The number three, because of the number of gifts, kings, some say because of the expense of the gifts that they were given, but it's all speculation. All we really can assume about the Magi is that they were most likely from Persia or Babylon and that they were educated and that they were people of resource, 
that could afford to give the expensive gifts that they gave uh, to the baby Jesus. Uh, I'm assuming they had an interest in astrology or astronomy. But what Matthew's audience would know about the Magi is really important for us to understand. They may have been wise men in their own town, but the Jews did not look favorably upon the Magi. First of all, they were Gentiles. That was the first major tick against them. But as well, they were using pagan methods to seek divine guidance by looking to the skies. Or at least that's what the Jewish people would have thought. And in the Old Testament, that's looked down upon. Someone who does that would be considered to be bad company. So that's what Matthew's reader would have thought about the Magi. And so we might wonder, was it a blunder that Matthew includes the Magi in this account? Yet I have a feeling Matthew celebrates the fact that it's these Gentiles, these these foreigners who are divinely called and led to worship the promised Messiah. I think it's kind of personal for Matthew. He was a tax collector. He didn't get any lower than that. And yet he was called to follow and to submit uh, and to worship Jesus uh, as well. And so we have the Magi. Then we have King Herod. Now, King Herod is born uh, into a very uh, politically influential family. Uh, And right from day one, uh, it's quite clear that Herod himself is going to have uh, some great success politically. At the age of 25, he's made the governor of Galilee. And in 40 BC, uh, he's given the title by the Roman Senate, King of the Jews. But there's some problems with that. Uh, Herod was only half Jewish. He did not have a legitimate right to the throne. Uh, He wasn't very religious at all. And he may have been called king of the Jews, but the Jews were terrified of Herod. And rightly so. He was a preoccupied king. He was preoccupied with his power. And Herod would do anything, literally anything. Family members, not even excluded. If he thought someone had aspirations towards his throne, he got rid of them. Nothing stood between Herod and his throne uh, and his power. He was preoccupied with his possessions and his prestige. And he was preoccupied by his paranoia. He was suspicious of anything and anyone and everything that possibly could be even imagined to be a threat to his throne or a threat to his life. And he lived his life and he served his reign, totally paranoid that someone was trying to to get him off the throne uh, and, and someone was trying to end his life. And so we got King Herod. And then we got Jesus. And right from the start, we get the idea that this baby born is something special. I said Matthew wants his readers to understand that that Jesus is the fulfillment 
of the Old Testament prophecies. And it's quite marvelous how Matthew writes this account because it's Herod, King Herod, who identifies Jesus for us. And in verse 4, he asks, where has the Messiah been born? The Messiah, the long-awaited God-appointed ruler whose rule will never be overthrown, who will usher in the final chapter of God's redemptive history, who will establish his kingdom, which will never be overthrown, uh, and he will never lose his reign. And so despite this baby's humanity and, and infant frailty, in this baby, the living God has come to earth. The Savior of the world. The true King. And so I don't mean to, and I'm sure Matthew doesn't mean to burst your Christmas carol bubble. We think of this account and we, the first thought probably comes to mind is the Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orientar. And Matthew, he doesn't want you to think about the three kings. It probably wasn't three. He wants you to think of the two kings. King Herod, who we're introduced to. And King Jesus. And it's like Matthew is saying to his readers, and he's saying us today, you tell me. Who's the true king? Who is worthy of your worship in your submission. Do you want a madman or do you want the Messiah? Do you want one who would order the massacre of two-year-old and younger boys? Or, or do you want one who opens his arms to little children? Do you want one who would protect his life at the cost of anyone in his way? Or do you want one who would willingly give up his life even for those less deserving, those far from innocent. And I think Matthew comes to a quick conclusion. The answer's kind of easy to come to. Matthew kind of does it for us. If you, you see how creatively he writes this account. He introduces us to King Herod uh, and to Jesus in verse 1. It's King Herod who identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the, 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 the rightful king. And as we get to the end of the account, the Magi bow down and worship Jesus, and Matthew stops calling Herod King Herod. Herod just becomes Herod. And as you get to the end of chapter 2, Matthew just simply says, yeah, after Herod died... And then we get into chapter 3, and, and John the Baptist is saying, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Who's the true king? And what should our response be to that king? And so we start off with three kings. It's really just a tradition. And we're confronted with two kings. And we're left with one true king. 
And Matthew says, what's your response? How do you respond to the baby born king? And in the account, Matthew shows us, I think, the three most common responses to Jesus in the account and throughout history that we'll see. And the first response is that of Herod. Herod responds with hostility and rejection. He rejects this newborn king and he wants him gone. He wants him destroyed. In verse 3, it says that Herod's disturbed. Literally, he is terrified. He's deeply troubled. He's, he's in anguish. Why? Because Jesus is a threat to his power and to his authority. We just saw how Herod would do anything to protect his throne. And yet now we have the Magi coming and asking, oh, hey, by the way, where's that baby that was born king? We've come to worship him. It's the last thing that Herod wanted to hear. And if you, and if you stop a moment and, and you're honest with yourself, I get it. I can understand that. Having played on different sports teams, knowing, knowing what it's like to kind of be considered one of the better players on the team, and then a new person comes on the team, and everyone says, oh, wow, this, this player's fantastic. He was the captain of his team. All of a sudden, hey, that was kind of my domain. Or at work, when the new hotshot salesperson comes on staff. Or maybe it's in the neighborhood. You're, you're, the, you're the neighborhood authority on mechanics or cooking. And all of a sudden, a real mechanic or a chef moves on to your street. We get it. We know what it was like. Well, this was huge for Herod. And the bottom line was King Herod couldn't coexist with King Jesus. Jesus had to be overthrown and he had to be dismissed. Confronted with King Jesus, Herod responds with hostility and with rejection. Why? Because Herod realized that if Jesus truly was king, then he wasn't. And this response of Herod's isn't unique. It's not the only time we see it. It's quite a common response. There are people all around us who have responded to Jesus by rejecting him, and not just rejecting him, but be, being downright hostile towards him, which in a, in a way doesn't even make sense. Like, why do you have to be hostile? Reject him, but why do you have to be so hostile? Why do people on Facebook, who obviously aren't followers of Jesus, why don't they just leave him alone? Why don't they just leave Christians alone? No, they're hostile. They got hate. But it makes sense when you realize that anyone who gives any kind of consideration to the person Jesus realizes Jesus is a threat. He's a threat to our way of thinking. He's a threat to our way of living. Because just like Herod, if Jesus is king, we aren't. And so we can respond in hostility and rejection. Or we can acknowledge him for who he is and we can bow to him in worship and in submission. 
But when we do that, that means our dethronement. It means our submission. It means that we no longer are the leaders of our own life. So that was Herod's response. And it's a common response. But I think there's a a response that's even more common, that we see it even more often. And that's the response of the majority of the people who are in the account. And Matthew just calls them all of Jerusalem. Represents a whole lot of people. Five miles away from Jerusalem. Word is given that the promised Messiah possibly has been born. But none of them seem to be interested enough or have the energy enough to go and check to see if it really is true. Against the backdrop of all that's taken place, all the stuff that we've talked about for the last month, what's taking place with Elizabeth and Mary and, and Joseph and the announcement to the shepherds, Simeon and Anna at the temple, this long journey by the Magi, the fact that the religious elite easily answered the question, where was the Messiah to have been born? They knew the answers. They knew that it was at Bethlehem. And now word has been given that the the promised Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. And what's the response? Indifference. Apathy. In fact, it says not only is Herod disturbed, but it says all of Jerusalem is disturbed as well. And what are they so disturbed about? Well, the easy answer is they're disturbed because they're terrified of King Herod and what Herod's response is going to be. But it says that they are disturbed along with King Herod. They shared some of the same concerns and, and apprehensions. So why the apathy? Why the indifference? Why being disturbed? Well, the religious elite had their reasons. The Old Testament has some pretty harsh things to say about the leaders of God's flock who are leading them astray and that that God is going to send the promised Messiah. And there's some harsh warnings. And I'm sure they're aware of those prophecies. But as well, they realize that this is the promised Messiah. If people start following this Jesus, it's going to really shake up the establishment. That's going to affect their pocketbook. It's going to affect their prestige, their position, their power. But what about the rest of Jerusalem? Why the apathy? Why the indifference? Why would they be disturbed? Well, they got their reasons too. This, this promised Messiah is a helpless baby? Not quite what they were expecting. Not the powerful Messiah that they were looking forward to. What could a helpless baby offer them? They, they weren't like these magi who came to give. They, they wanted to receive. They wanted to receive power and, or, and dignity and freedom. And look how the birth was announced. It wasn't through the priests. It was, it was announced to shepherds, irreligious, 
lowly, unclean shepherds. It should have been the priests. And you expect us to come and worship alongside these Gentiles? And they feared Herod's response. That was true. They wanted to not align themselves with anything that Herod might not like for fear of their life. The bottom line, Paul tells us about it in Romans, is unbelief. They weren't seeking God. They were doing and believing what was right in their own mind. And so they respond with indifference. And they had the reasons. And someone might be here this morning, and, and that's your response to Jesus. You hear it every year at Christmas time. You're here this morning because you've been dragged out. And you hear this time and time and time again. And your response to Jesus is just kind of indifferent. Don't really care. And you've got your reason. I think it's important to understand that indifference is not neutral ground. The Bible says that you're either for God or against God. And so a response of indifference is a response of rejection. The second thing, I want to say it carefully, it's easy for those of us in the church who are followers of Jesus to say, yes, I recognize those two responses. That's what people who don't follow Jesus, that's their response. Rejection, hostility, and indifference. I think we see ripples and reflections of those two responses even in the lives of those who profess to be followers. I know what it's like to find myself in a place where I find it difficult to imagine that King Brent and King Jesus can coexist at the same time. And I know that there's times in my life where I come to church on a Sunday and I do all the things that a follower of Jesus is supposed to do, and yet I live my life at times as if there is no king on the throne. And I do what I want to do. And I live life the way I want to live my life. And I make the decisions that I want to make regardless of the fact that I know that that's not what God would want for me, that that's not what I have been called to do. That's not what the Bible instructs me. And so we have to be careful and be willing to recognize the ripples of those responses that might be evident in our own life as followers of Jesus. Well, then Matthew gives us the final response, the response that I believe is the correct response. And believe it or not, it's given to us by the, less, the least likely people. The foreign Gentiles. The Magis. Who had all sorts of reasons not to be the ones to give that kind of response. Don't miss the threat and, and, and the danger of them continuing their search for Jesus, worshiping him, and then trying to escape from Herod. And yet for them, it was worth the cost. That's why I asked Arnie if he would read the scripture from Romans that we heard earlier. 
where Paul says, in view of all that God has done for us, including this great salvation, in view of his mercy and his grace, here's the proper response. Here's the strategic response. Here's the logical response. Offer your entire self to him in worship because it's worth the cost given what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. And verse 11 is significant. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and the Magi bowed down and worshipped him. Who is it that worshipped him? Was it, was it King Herod, the king of the Jews, who, who professed that he wanted to know where this baby was so he could worship them? No, it wasn't King Herod. Was it the religious elite that knew everything about what was supposed to happen? Did they come and worship him? No. All of Jerusalem? No, it was the Magi. These, these foreign Gentiles. Remember the words of the angel? I bring you good news of great joy that's for all people. And right here in Matthew 2, we realize that the kingdom of God is big enough for Jews and Gentiles, poor and rich, those who are seemingly righteous and those who are obviously not righteous. There's room for lowly shepherds. There's room for Gentile magi. There's room for you and me. Sally, can you put that picture up? A nativity scene. Now, I was thinking that after we looked at this account this morning, some of you, if you haven't already put your stuff away, are probably going to go home and maybe correct some of the inaccuracies uh, in your nativity scene. But I don't want you to go too fast. If you just want to stare at this nativity scene or imagine your nativity scene at home where we've got the shepherds and the magi and the animal, everything, stars still there, everything in the one scene. I want you to think of this text. And then I want you to think of the scandal that you see behind me. How scandalous a scene that really is. A teenage mother, a child conceived out of wedlock, a baby born in the same spot barn animals were and placed in a manger, a feeding trough. Lowly, unclean shepherds and foreign Gentiles. The scene is truly scandalous. But it's truly beautiful because it's a perfect picture of the gospel. The gospel that's like a magnet that draws people from all lands, old and young, rich and poor, from real bad backgrounds and those who've lived a life of prestige. And it brings them together and it calls them and introduces them to a king who is also a savior. And all of them are given the opportunity to respond, to bow down in reverence and submission 
and to worship Jesus. And this morning, that's our invitation. As we consider the beauty of the gospel as depicted in a nativity scene, we're confronted with a holy God, a Savior, a Prince of Peace, a rightful King. How will you respond? Ernie.